0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: I was just seventeen. A couple of my friends were spending the summer in a squat in Earl's Court, and what I wanted more than anything was to join them there, before coming back to go into sixth year. Six whole weeks of fun, freedom, and access to all of the bands I'd heard about in the New Musical Express which I read from cover to cover every week while nursing a tepid coffee in Bewley's and Grafton Street. None of those bands ever played here or ever would and as soon as any of the Dublin bands got any good they'd hightail it over to London as well. I had some money saved from my job as a kitchen porter and it just made perfect sense for me to go. Except to my mother, an edict was handed down under no circumstances whatsoever was I to even think about leaving the jurisdiction. Maybe it was because I had previous form in this regard. I'd run away from home a couple of times, the longest escapade being when another Connor and I had spent a week camping out on top of Ross's Point, just outside Sligo. We hadn't thought it through terribly well. It was November, there were torrential storms, and we were in a tent. We were lucky not to be blown out to sea. Maybe my mother knew me better than I knew myself and figured that despite my protestations, once I hit the big city, I probably wouldn't be back. So one morning in mid-July, I crept out of the house at the crack of dawn to be in good time for the mailboat to Holyhead. Then I had to creep straight back in again to get the sleeping bag I'd forgotten. I didn't leave a note that I thought would say more, but did ring home after the first few days in London. My mother was resigned, knowing that she couldn't persuade me to come back, but at least she was reassured by the knowledge that I was well able to fend for myself. The squat was a near-derelict four-storey-over basement on the West Cromwell Road, with the top two floors largely occupied by Irish students living it up between sixth year and college. I slept on the floor of the living room, which had the iron frame of a grand piano lent up against the wall, and for some reason a full bottle of milk superglued upside down to the ceiling. I made sure not to spend any time underneath it. London was everything I'd hoped for, and more. I bought a leather jacket and dyed my hair canary yellow, went to loads of gigs and spent Saturdays hanging around down the King's Road. I didn't particularly care that my diet was mainly bananas and bread, washed down with pints of milk filched from nearby doorsteps. Anyway, we could vary our diet a bit whenever someone in the squat would get a day's work in a kitchen and return in the evening with their trousers stuffed full of raw sausages. After a while, my status within the family shifted from teenage runaway to now lives in London. It probably wasn't when I got a job, waiting tables and a greasy spoon cafe. More likely, it was the time my father was in London and arrived for a state visit. The squat was tidied up as much as a squat can be, the bottle of milk was disappeared, and on the day, we all lined up as though ready to meet the Queen. I remember it was all pretty awkward, but it still felt great to see someone from home. Despite all my teenage rebelliousness, It never even crossed my mind not to come home for Christmas. Running away might have been an act of understandable defiance, but not showing up for Christmas dinner would have been unforgivable. Every December, my bohemian mother, who usually fed us on lentils and ratatouille, would transform into a 70s version of Mrs. Beaton, serving up the full Victorian, including Brussels sprouts, spiced beef, cranberry sauce and brandy butter it was glorious my own son never ran away thankfully he did do a stealth emigration however when he went to london after college to intern for a visual effects company and got given a proper job almost immediately that led to another one and then another this time in montreal but wherever he's lived he's always come back for christmas Until, of course, last Christmas. The tickets were bought, the plans were made, and then as the lockdown took hold, we had to face the reality that he wasn't going to make it back. It was tough. Which will make it all the sweeter this coming December the 21st, when I'll be waiting in the airport at the crack of dawn, filled with anticipation and knowing that now... What I want more than anything is to see my boy again back for the Christmas.
2: It was generally agreed that my father could have been anything if he'd had the bit of education. I often wonder at the grinding frustration and disappointment felt by men and women of his generation, born in the 1900s and denied by virtue of their poverty and lowliness, the opportunity to develop their innate and evident gifts, To explain away some surprising ability or information, my father often remarked with self-deprecating humility and not a little pride. I never went to school, but I met the scholars coming home. His talents found expression in simple ways as he flourished shopping lists in the most exquisite copperplate. The grocer often remarked on the striking handwriting as he served us our quarter of tea and pan loaf. It was, however, after a few rare pints in December in Ned Ryan's pub in Bridge Street Care that my father came into his power when persuaded centre stage to proclaim a recitation for the company. The visit to the pub for my father and his companions was funded by their weeks of work as turkey pluckers. Choked with the thirst after long hours in the plucking shed, they sought respite from the pulling and tugging of tail and wing feathers, the singeing of pin feathers, the constant vigilance to avoid tearing the bird or torching the skin. Flush with a few shillings from this seasonal work, He'd swing me from the bar of his bicycle for an evening of lemonade and tato crisps and the company of the men. I often think about how privileged I was as a child to be included in the company. My older siblings had all emigrated and I, the youngest by more than a decade, was as much my parents' companion as their child. Those evenings, Ned Ryan's pub might as well have been Carnegie Hall for the assembly. The men would sink a couple of quick pints of porter before the real entertainment began. First up, Christy Partle, his big rampant head of corals swaying to the rhythms of the wild colonial boy. As eyes closed, he recounted the wild goings-on of the doughty Jack Dugan that picaresque character who proved to be a terror to Australia. Christie, like the rest of us, probably hadn't been beyond Clonmel, but those evenings he was transported to the outback, riding along with his hero, Jack Dugan, both of them listening to the mockingbird and keeping wily lookout for the mounted troopers. Another lovely young lad called Pat Halley regaled the company with the three lovely lassies from Banyan. The chorus celebrated how Pat, the singer with the melodious voice, was indeed the best of them all. Even as a child, I wanted to echo that assertion and say, yes, with your lovely dark hair and hands scratched raw from the turkey plucking, you are the best of them all. The noble call requesting a contribution from my father was always met with the explanation that he couldn't sing but would say a recitation. On such occasions he was august as a Shakespearean actor as he drew himself up to full stature to enthrall his appreciative and entranced listeners with The Green Eye of the Little Yellow God or The Shooting of Dan McGrew. The poor men my father drank with lived lives harsh with the prohibitions of class and the curtailing rigours of their station. But thanks to my father's dramatic and commanding storytelling, they were familiar with that tragic little spot to the north of Kathmandu, where the luckless Mad Carew met his bloody end as the Yellow God exacted revenge. The men would nod sagely into their pints at the crazed and lovelorn foolishness of one of their own, poor Carew, who was demented with love for the colonel's daughter. The men were also boozing buddies of Robert Service's Bunch of the Boys, who were always whooping it up in the Malamute Saloon until the tormented miner, intent on retribution, burst in, his demeanour full of a hunger that they too recognised, a hunger that was not of the belly kind. Men like my father could indeed have been anything, but they made do with the drudgery of labouring on farms or the grim toil of lugging bags of grain in the mill. Ned Ryan's was their concert hall those December evenings where they recited poetry or lifted their lovely voices to the overarching sky. The river shore, gurgling, brown and unrelenting outside.
0: Thing is, I love Christmas morning in Glasnevin Cemetery. We've been going there for years—myself, the kids, and me ma. The ma swears she won't enjoy a bite of her Christmas dinner unless she does the graves. Doing the graves for Christmas starts at the beginning of December. I always go to me dad's grave on my birthday, the fourth of December, and the ma comes with me. I just want to give me dad some flowers plant a kiss on his headstone, thank him for being a gift da to us nine kids and give him the news on his 17 grandkids and three great-grandchildren. The ma has other ideas. She wants to get the graves looking nice for the Christmas. Ma rocks up with marigold gloves, a gardening trowel, a tin of Mr Sheen and a dust cloth. I've spent more than a few birthdays digging up the weeds and thistles that sprout out of the white pebbles, cover me Da's final resting place. The ma wipes away all the debris from winter winds and polishes Da's black granite headstone to a high gleam. It's kind of a mad way to spend your birthday, but I do be glad come Christmas morning. Christmas morning arrives and we leave me husband at home cooking. The husband is not only a lovely man, But he's also a gift cook and he indulges me ma's need to keep it old school with roast goose. Parking up at the cemetery is like the wacky races. The double yellow lines are covered with the last of the amber leaves. The curbs look lonesome and folks take this as a sign to be very imaginative about parking cars. Besides, people need to see their people. I reckon me ma ain't the only one who can't enjoy the Christmas unless she does the graves. I love the cemetery crowd on Christmas morning. Small kids ride their new trikes and scooters, beaming at a graveside and shouting, Granda, look at what Santy's after bringing me for Christmas. Big hard chals of men carry festive bouquets of delicate flowers. A bunch of owl ones raise a glass of whiskey to an owl pal. An older gentleman lays a single red rose on the burial place of his late wife. A couple leave a new teddy on a child's grave. And just when you think your heart might fall into flitters, a dog on a lead of tinsel and wearing reindeer antlers wags its tail as he sniffs at your new shoes. Or you spot some head-the-balls trying their damnedest to pull a Dublin jersey over a large, stout tombstone. Up the dubs is right. The ma, myself, and the kids buy Christmas reeds for the da, the grandparents and the aunts. Our two sons know the routine. We lay the wreaths, say a prayer, kiss the headstones and then their nanny, my ma, will raise her face skyward and shout out, Merry Christmas to all yous up in heaven. Sometimes people look over at us. Most times people just smile and continue on about their business. The years fly. Our two little boys have grown into tall, strong teenagers. They might go a bit scarlet, what with their nanny roaring in the graveyard, but they'd never say a word because they think the sun, moon and stars shine out of their nanny. Well, they would. Their nanny lets them eat selection boxes for Christmas breakfast, each and every year. And I don't even want to know what else she lets them do. But this year will be different. This Christmas morning, me ma won't be coming with us. She's now at peace and back in the arms of me da. Yet, yeah, this year will be the same. Myself and the kids will go to Glasnevin Cemetery on Christmas morning. Humanity will be there in all its glory. Kids with their new toys. Hard chaws with festive bouquets. Owl ones raising a toast. Bereft parents gifting a new teddy. A dog on a lead of tinsel. And no doubt, a couple have had the balls thrown in for good measure. My sons and I will carry the Christmas wreaths to the graves of my parents, my grandparents and aunts. Me manda, their beloved Nanny Bernie and Grandad Charlie would be so proud. We will lay the wreaths, say a prayer and kiss the headstones. For now, it's my turn. It's my honour to raise me face skyward and shout out, Merry Christmas! To all yous, up in heaven.
3: It's the light, isn't it, that makes winter special in Ireland? Certainly not the bone-chilling cold or the snotty damp fog settling on the windows of the bus, a smiley face fingered on the glass by an unhappy schoolchild and steam rising off hunched shoulders in pubs and cafes while puddles form around your feet. But the light, that razor-thin glint of sunshine over the horizon that lengthens December shadows to 10, 20, 30 feet. In the depths of winter, the sun shines on the never new for only a few hours, reminding us that we are, for better or worse, a northern country. Sure, we can pick a tapas and fork penne dishes and sip cappuccinos while sitting next to a giant heat lamp outside an overpriced gastro pub, but let's face it, at heart we're Vikings, not Mediterraneans. If only this country could master double glazing and had actual proper central heating – we could almost be Danes, snuggling in cosy jumpers by the fire, settling into a good dose of scantinoir, while the sun falls in the west and that peculiar inky twilight envelops the land. Perhaps we need to adopt an Irish version of the Danish idea of hygge. Oh hugge, or wee huggen, if you like. We don't like to think of ourselves as a wintry people, of course. For most of us, it's just too grim. Wake up in darkness, leave work in darkness. Were it not for the Christmas, with its teary welcome home to our wild geese at the airport, the joyous chance encounters while out shopping for presents, pints on Christmas Eve, and popping round to the neighbours to spread good cheer, we probably wouldn't make it through the season. After all, it's a mild winter we have. Isn't that what we learned at school? Mild meaning damp and cold and blustery, often with seemingly endless heavy sheets of rain, but without the true shock of cold and the comforting blanket of snow enjoyed by our fellow latitudinists in Moscow and Montreal. Instead, we long for spring, keep an eye out for crocuses and daffodils and hearken for the dawn chorus. We make a virtue of high summer when the sky never seems to get truly dark, post photos of fiery sunsets taken at half ten at night, we crunch over broken twigs and dead foliage through dun-coloured woods in autumn, collecting sycamore and oak leaves for a design project we somehow never get round to doing. But I think winter is glorious. There's something quite special about it. Geese from Greenland choose to spend winter with us, instead of opting for warmer clines farther south. The ducks and swans paddle in chilly waters in ponds and canals. They're hardy souls. And in spite of ourselves, we must be too. Why else would masses of people gather on Christmas Day to plunge into the sea? Why else would rugby fans wrap up and endure bone-numbing hard plastic seats in the middle of January? And tell me, is there anywhere else in the Northern Hemisphere where you can buy ice cream cones in February? We may grumble at having to squint at the blinding light hanging so low in the sky during the winter months, but the Celts knew its importance and paid it due reverence. The winter solstice, after all, is all about light. Newgrange gets all the press, but the solstice also marks a battle between twin brothers, the Oak King and the Holly King. These two square off twice a year. In winter, the Oak King, his branches bare, seems to be in defeat, while his evergreen brother stands out triumphant against the barren landscape. But the holly king's time is equally brief, and the darkness he signifies is coming to an end. The oak king represents the light, and he emerges victorious from battle on December 21st, heralding the ever-brightening days of the coming months. So I think we need to welcome winter light, especially on those days rare as diamonds, when the sky is miraculously cloudless and the sun is a large bright disk lurking behind bare trees, the long shadows of their branches reaching out to embrace us.
4: Christmas Eve, 1930, Newtown, Mount Kennedy. You are fourteen. It is Christmas Eve and your birthday. The church is bedecked with swags of holly, sprigs of ivy, sprays of winter flowers in opulent profusion. The congregation is already gathered. There is an excited hum. A party from the big house is expected. It is rumoured that Count John McCormack will attend. The choristers at the front of the gallery see the gentry arrive, marvel at one gentleman's fur-coloured overcoat. Like Russian aristocrats, the whole party exude opulence. When they cross the threshold, the signal comes for the music to begin. All those voices erupting in unison, like a great flock of doves released into the air. How you revel in it, your pure soprano voice rising highest. You imagine the notes escaping through the roof, travelling far into the heavens, crossing in front of the full moon. How far do you see into your future as the notes take off? On the way home, you sit snug between your sisters in the trap, The blanket pulled tight around you. There are goats, cattle, sheep in the ink-dark fields on either side of the road as you head east towards the sea, grandfather encouraging the pony. Above, the heavens are full of stars and the iron-rimmed wheels strike sparks off the frosted road. On and on you ride further and further towards Bethlehem all the while dissolving into sweet contentment, passing far beyond yourself like a shadow moving overhead or a bird with a thousand notes flitting from treetop to treetop and all your tomorrows hovering there as grandfather pulls on his pipe and the bowl glows red. Will you ever feel such exhilaration again as on that glorious winter's night in County Wicklow, long time ago.
5: It was scarce mid-autumn. Already, in the big, aggressive stores, there were glossy baubles set out for Christmas. In one of the insistent windows, there was a crib with small clay beasts, the ox, the sheep, the shepherds, Joseph and Mary, and even the child, laid in straw of the manger. Weeks to go yet, months even. I could find words for the thinking behind such anticipation. Words like, too soon, like marketing. In the city park, I watched a leaf, gold sycamore, in its slow glissando down the skyways to the brown earth. I could find words for the loveliness of that. But in mid-autumn, there are no ready words for the infant God's drop onto our fallen world. I could not negotiate this strange time-lapse. But a language for the wonders of the non-aggressive, natural world in which we live, these I can find and hold to. The sounding board of Heather Bogland, of my home place, for instance, makes the cries of Meadow pipit, Snipe and Curlew ring. And the lark... Sky high so that you see and see again, then you lose it, but hear its trills and hallelujahs, its exulting. Until soon the lark descending stirs you, its slow inclining down to the hidden nest, still point, the heart beating. I believe we have to grow from crib to cross, from crib through cross, to crib again. Evening that same early autumn day, I sat idly before the television, and then a girl-child, scarce four years old, was gazing out at me from the bombed-out rubble of some poor house deep in the ravaged and historic country of Afghanistan. She looked out at this our world, from the incomprehension of her pain and place. Blood stained her white dress brown-red. Shrapnel wounds peppered her flesh. Dust and dirt covered her, scattering the gifting of wild flowers she had gathered before the missile struck. I closed my eyes, and when I opened them, I saw the evening star in its far indifference transform Through my tears to a shimmering cross. And then, remembering the bright window of the store, I thought again of the child and of the children who play at the corners of collapsed houses and in amongst the hiding places of their destroyed villages. I thought of Joseph, young, proud, and anxious father, his words of love over the child Jesus falling drop. By drop, like a note recurrent on the white key of the piano. And how he worried, how we all worry, that we might protect the children from tyranny, from the Herods, the Caesars, the virus of commonplace injustice. One Christmas past, I found myself in the underground Chicago, waiting in the echo chambers of the underearth where the zinc-can trains come crashing and thundering through. And I heard and watched while the gentle and resonant voice of one of the almost lost, one man down and nearly out, was offering the song the angels choired in the night sky above his stable. Eyes closed, he was nodding in time, beating on his palm with a child's hand-rattle. He wore a tattered red windcheater, bruised bedroom slippers, a red baseball cap. But his song was prayer, in its sweetness and intent, and he sang as if conscious of sin, not expecting coins. Sometimes the clatter and hustle of arriving and departing trains devoured his voice, his hymn. Then... Ceasing to sway, he simply waited in silence, eyes still closed, and sighed, as if to say, Oh yes, I have compassion still upon the multitude, overpowered by the might of corporations. I could offer him only coins. I could find no words to cheer him. Bright morning comes, the dawn light soft as dewfall. Now, when I closed my eyes, I saw straggling groups and crowd clusters under dark clouds, refugees crossing on the horizon, their heads down. Yet we hold, before the birth of the child, trust, trust in the graciousness of creation, the vulnerability of innocence, rainfall, bearing down the just one. We take no offence at him, this newborn child Jesus, who will become the outlaw Christ. It is love's fault. We will let the children play. And in the manger now, look, the baby reaching up, his screwed-up features, as yet the hard-won flight of the Christ scarce forethought of. Consult the beasts again, the heavy-headed ox, the lumpen, soft-hearted ewe. Consult, too, the assaulted woman in intensive care, the man, near out and down, stretched out now, sodden-hearted, in the stench of an alleyway. What words for these? What word? Goldfinches in their charms, eagles in their convocations, Descent of the Godhead into the secret nest Therefore, now, at last Hush, hush The babe dutifully sleeps And we will let the children play
6: On this morning's programme we heard Runaway by Conor Horgan And then the Turkey Pluckers concert by Margaret Galvin That was followed by Merry Christmas to All Yous Up in Heaven by Rachel Hegarty. Then Niall McArdle with Winter Light. And then we heard Christmas Eve 1930 Newtown Mount Kennedy, a poem by Kevin McDermott. And finally, Finding the Words by John F. Dean. Music this morning. We began with London Calling by The Clash. Then the Clancy Brothers with The Wild Colonial Boy. That was followed by In Paradisum from Foray's Requiem, sung by the Choir of New College Oxford, conducted by Edward Higginbottom. Then we had In the Bleak Midwinter, performed by the London Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Michael Warren Green. And finally, Guno's Ave Maria, also sung by the Choir of New College Oxford. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany
0: podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.